I was working at detail. It was an overtime detail. And uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, we were up on the 15, partial closure on the freeway, and dispatch puts out a call of a 1180 with a possible hit and run. That means a major injury accident. Uh, it happened just south of the 138. And so my partner and I, we went ahead and we responded. We were the first on scene. We were only maybe two miles away. And when we got there, there was one vehicle that was off in the center divider. It had spun around. It had some pretty good damage to the rear. But I saw two people standing outside of the vehicle. So I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe this isn't, you know, as major of an injury as, as I thought it was going to be. So I grabbed my EMT kit. We head on up there, and I said, hey, is, is anybody hurt? Is anybody injured? And the mom, who was the driver, she just, she didn't say a word. She just went like this and pointed towards the rear seat of the car. There was an eight-year-old boy with his head slumped over. And I could tell just by looking at him that his neck was broken. Went in, immediately support, put C-spine support to him, held him up. The other person that was standing there was a nurse. She said, when I first got on scene, I felt a pulse. I can't feel a pulse anymore. We knew we had to start CPR as soon as possible. So while supporting his neck and holding him up and taking my knife out with the other, I cut the seatbelt, and as soon as that seatbelt came off, his body just went completely limp. His body was still warm. We laid him down on the freeway, and we started CPR until the fire department got there. Honestly, anything that fire did, it was more just for the mom. Witnesses had said that the hit-and-run driver had thrown something outside of the vehicle just after the collision. So a bunch of us went ahead and grabbing our flashlights, we're searching all around on the side of the freeway, trying to find whatever it was that he had thrown out. And I remember praying, God, help me find whatever this is. Get me all of the evidence so that this individual can be convicted. To the full extent, the letter of the law needs to be thrown at this individual. Now, I said that it was potentially a hit and run. He had only made it because of so much damage to his vehicle about a mile down the road. Another one of the units had gone and picked him up, threw him into the back of the patrol car, and then he pulled back up on scene. I remember looking at him. His head hung low, drunk, and thinking, God, please, please, Let him receive everything that's due to him. In our passage today, Jesus asked the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save a life or destroy? I have to be completely honest with you. And I looked into the back of that patrol car, saw him sitting there. I wanted to save the life of that eight-year-old boy, but destroy the life of that drunk. I wanted the full extent of the law thrown at this individual. I wanted him locked up and thrown away the key. 
Did he deserve mercy and grace or the full extent of the law? You see, in law enforcement, they say that the only thing that's black and white is our patrol cars. And there is the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. Now, the letter of the law says that if you're doing 66 miles an hour down the freeway, I can pull you over and write you a citation for that. However, if you're doing 75 miles an hour on the freeway and I pull up alongside of you, look at you, kind of wave and say, slow it down a little bit. See, that's the spirit of the law. We call that a white door warning. See, when it comes to us, we want that spirit of the law. We want God's grace and mercy. But when it comes to others, we want the letter of the law. Throw the book at him or her. We want the hellfire that goes with it too. See, that's where the Pharisees were. Constantly trying to enforce the letter of the law. Do you know that they believed that if every Jew kept the Sabbath perfectly, the Messiah would come? We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Today, we're going to see that Jesus, he employs the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. He gives grace to his disciples for eating just a little bit of grain. When he sees a man with a withered hand, he doesn't follow the letter of the law and say, oh, I'm sorry, it's the Sabbath. I'd like to heal this man, but I cannot. For after all, the law does not allow me. But instead, Jesus says, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Aren't you glad that this is our Savior? I know it is when it comes to me and my life, the mistakes that I've made and the sins that I've committed. How about you? The title of today's message, The Spirit of the Law. Would you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would prepare the hearts and minds that you would allow us to hear your word and to hear the meaning behind it. Lord, we're going to see the Pharisees. They were ones who just nitpicked at your word, at your word, at your law. Yes, we are to take it to heart. We are to follow it. But Lord, we can never thank you enough for the grace and mercy that's given to us each and every day. Lord, I look at myself and I know what a sinner I am. And yet still, you are good to forgive. So Lord, as we come before you this morning, prepare our hearts. And I pray, Lord, etch what your word says upon it. And God, if there's anything of man, let it fall upon deaf ears. You know how much we love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. If there's anybody who has a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the ushers will come around and give it to you. We'll be starting in Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful do to do on the Sabbath? Think about this. 
There's no in and out. There's no Chick-fil-A that they could just go ahead and stop into in order to go grab something to eat. Whenever people traveled during that time, they either took with them the food that they needed for that journey, or they would go ahead and stop into the fields, and they would glean from those fields in order to sustain themselves. Deuteronomy 23 verses 24 and 25 states, If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want. But do not put any into your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands. But you must not put a sickle to their standing. So what were the uh, apostles, what were the disciples doing wrong? You see, the, the Pharisees had a problem not with what Jesus' disciples did, but rather their accusation concerned when they did it. What day was this on? The Sabbath. Ah, therein lies the problem. Or the perceived problem with our Pharisees. Are you allowed to do any work on the Sabbath? No. Even to this day, remember I told you the, about the Shabbat elevators over in Israel. That here it is, the elevators stop on every floor. Because the Jews feel that pushing the button on the elevator is considered work. What work then did the Pharisees have so much of a problem with? You see in our passage, our disciples, they plucked, they rubbed, and they ate. The Pharisees were equating this to a reaping of a harvest, a threshing, and preparing. You are not even allowed to prepare food. So literally, the Jews still do it to this day. On that Friday, up until evening, they prepare two meals or meals enough for both days so that there, isn't, there doesn't need to be any of the preparation that would make them in violation of the Sabbath. See, the things, the harvesting, the threshing, the preparation, this was all against the Levitical laws that the Jews had. Now, how many laws did God give Moses? Ten, right? The Ten Commandments, yes. And of these Ten Commandments, which ones were the disciples violating? None. You see, was it really work to go ahead and grab some grain, rub it together, and then eat. However, this is the problem with legalism. Do you know how many laws the Jews have created around those 10? 613. 613 in an attempt to keep them from violating the 10. That's why Jesus came up and had them go ahead and gave them the, the liberties, the legal, not the legalism. And we see this in his word. Now, are there those that take our freedoms to extremes? Absolutely. And not that I'm here to judge each man's heart, but you can clearly see the danger of what the Pharisees were doing. Now, the second point, you see, the Jews at this time, as well as many Orthodox Jews today, believe that the Messiah will not come unless the Sabbath is perfectly kept by all the people of Israel. I mentioned this in the intro. This is why the Pharisees were so intent on keeping the Sabbath regulations. 
This also shows how intently the Pharisees were watching Jesus and his disciples. Much like today with some of our unsafe friends that we have. Oh, how quick they are to point out when we do something wrong. Oh, I thought you were a Christian. Oh, that didn't seem very Christian-like. Remember, we're not sinless. We just try to sin less, right? Now, the last point I'll make about this is notice who the Pharisees go to. Not to Jesus, but his disciples, right? And I suggest they did this to fill the disciples with doubt. You see, filling the heads of the disciples with inconsistencies. Hey, your teacher says to keep the Sabbath, it's holy. But look what he's allowing you to do in breaking the Sabbath like that. They knew they couldn't mess with Jesus. But his disciples, that was the weak point. Let's work on them. And that brings us to our first point today. Know the word of God. Know the word of God. When false accusations come, when the enemy tries to take you down with untruths and lies, combat him by knowing the word of God. Verse 3. But Jesus answered them, said, have you not even read this? Now, I love this. I love this. You know what that was? That was just a dig. That was a slap in the face to each and every one of the Pharisees because the Pharisees knew God's word. But notice, he doesn't come and try to argue with them philosophically. Instead, he opens the door of Scripture to them. I mean, is there anyone who knew the Scriptures better than Jesus? <laughs> My word shall not return void, God declared, but shall accomplish the purpose for which it was sent out. Isaiah 55, 11. Now, you might not see the effects right away, but like a timer, like a ticking time bomb inside of each and every one of us, by knowing the word of God, we can make that scripture into people's hearts, and eventually it will be brought forth with power and persuasively to their minds. Continuing. Have you not read this, what David did? Jesus asked. The Pharisees knew their scripture, so much so that they could go ahead and tell you how many letters were in the Old Testament, how many of each letter was in the Old Testament, and where the middle letter was of the Old Testament and where it was located. They thoroughly immersed themselves in the scriptures. Of course, they read of course they knew what, what David did. But that's the point. For although they had read it repeatedly, they had totally missed the meaning. So too, like the Pharisees, we can be guilty of reading God's word again and again, over and over. But we miss the essence of its meaning. The Lord always wants to show us more in his word. And more than we know presently. But it takes an open mind and a tender heart in order to receive it. Think of Samuel. When he heard his name being called, Eli told him to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We see this in 1 Samuel 3.9. Too often, I believe, we say the complete opposite. Listen, Lord, while your servant speaks. 
See, in Ezra 7.10, it states, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees. Ezra prepared his heart to seek the Lord and his law before he taught it to others. Know the word of God. And may that be true of us as well. Continuing in verse 3. When he was hungry, he and those who were with him, speaking of David, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. So what is Jesus speaking about here? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 1. And in verse 1, it states, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech, the priest, the king has sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. By the way, that was a lie, and there'd be consequences for that later. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's body are holy, even if on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day that it was taken away. If you remember in the temple, there was the showbread table and they had the 12 loaves of showbread that was on it. One representing each of the tribes. And that was the only bread or food or sustenance that they had in the temple. So David being hungry and his men, he goes into the place that only priests are allowed. Then he takes some of that showbread and he shares it with the rest of his men. Was David punished for this? Do we read about any consequences for his actions or are that of eating the showbread that only the priest could eat? No. And this shows God's love, his mercy, and his grace given by the Lord to David. So that begs the question, why was Jesus pointing out this scripture? You see, in drawing attention to this account, Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. The human need must always have priority over religious traditions and regulations. Let me read that again. The human need must always have priority over religious traditions and regulations. Love is the key. David and his men were hungry. Jesus and his men were hungry, and they ate. Verse 5, And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. David was justified in eating the showbread. The Pharisees must have reasoned. Well, David was an anointed king and a prophet. But they failed to see the same anointed king and prophet standing right in front of them. 
And if you remember, this isn't the first time that Jesus is in essence saying, I am the king, the Messiah. I am God. In verse 521 of Luke, we read, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And boy, were they right. And again, we read in 524, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Regardless of the laws and customs that the Pharisees cited that we saw in verse 2, Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. And if you want to learn more about that, come out to our fireside chats tonight because we are going to delve deep into some of those laws and the Sabbath. Verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose hand right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. They watched him closely. They knew exactly where Jesus was going to go. They didn't have to go ahead and position the man with the withered hand right up front so that Jesus would see him. They knew. Why? Because Jesus always went to the poor. That's who he went. Those that were poor in spirit. Those that were poor physically. Those that are poor today. He still comes to them. We're going to read in the Beatitudes the fact that here it is. It says, blessed are the you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. They watched him closely. It wasn't to see if he could heal, but what does it say? Whether he would heal on the Sabbath. You see, they knew, or at least some of the Pharisees likely, or at very least, would have heard about the healings that he'd done. Possibly even observed other healings and miracles. This was not enough for, to convince them that Jesus was their Messiah. How many other traveling rabbis were going around and healing people? And yet still, they denied him. I believe Jesus said it best in Mark 8, verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed over to the other side. You see, the Pharisees were so ensconced by their legalism... Even when Jesus does a miracle, a sign, a wonder, they didn't rejoice, but instead considered Jesus a threat to their way of life, their prestige, their comfort, their religion. That's one of the reasons why we don't have a denomination here at CCRS. We don't ascribe to a religion. We have a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our second point today. Have a relationship with Jesus. Have a relationship with Jesus. How many today deny and refuse to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior because they know it would totally encroach upon their sinful, materialistic ways of life? 
So the Pharisees are about to see a miracle. And instead of falling down and worshiping him, well, let's see what happens. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Obedience. Obedience. You know, I think all too often we think of obedience as this dirty four-letter word. Well, obey is, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Jesus told the man what to do. This man, I'm sure, wasn't thinking, well, maybe Jesus is going to heal me. Or maybe he was thinking that. But either way, he was obedient to Jesus. He was obedient even when Jesus asked him to do something that the man physically couldn't do. Again, just as when I spoke at the beginning of the year, asking each and every one of you to take that step of faith. Be obedient. And I encourage you once again. Are you listening to what Jesus might be telling you? Are we being obedient to our Savior? Which brings us to our third point. Be obedient to Jesus. Be obedient to Jesus. If we are obedient to our bosses at work, there may be a reward. If we're obedient to our wives or our husband, there might be rewards. But if we're obedient to Jesus, there will be a reward. Now, that may not be this side of heaven, but is there anyone here who doesn't want an extra crown in order to cast at the feet of Jesus? good. Then just be obedient. Is there mercy and grace for our sins when we're not? Absolutely. And we just saw that, right, with David and his men when they ate the showbread. But Jesus tells us to pray. So let's pray. Jesus tells us to be generous. Are we being generous with what God has blessed us with? It's all his anyway, right? You know what? Next week, we're going to read that we are to love our enemies. Are we? Okay, Adam, you have gone too far now. I can pray, I can be generous, but love my enemies? Come on! You know, when I would arrest somebody or give somebody a ticket, I didn't have any malice against them. Most of the time. But it was my duty, it was my job, it was my responsibility to keep the public safe. It wasn't personal. I was obedient in enforcing and following the law. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This man simply obeyed. Verse 9. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? You know, the media is always so good with their gotcha questions, whereas there's usually some kind of malice behind it. Jesus issues the ultimate gotcha question. Is it better to do good or evil? To save a life or destroy? Jesus, having the ultimate handle on scripture, knew that these things were not against even the 613 Levitical laws, and the Pharisees knew it. Quite honestly, this was more of a rhetorical question. Do you know what a rhetorical question is? Here's a definition. A rhetorical question is a figure of speech in which a question is asked for a reason other than to get an answer. 
Most commonly, it asked, it's asked to make a persuasive point. For example, if a person asks, how many times do I have to tell you not to do that? He or she does not want to know the exact number of the requests to be repeated. Rather, the speaker's goal is to emphasize his or her growing frustration and ideally change the behavior. Does that sound like the question Jesus was asking the Pharisees? Absolutely. You know, one time in my youth, one of my buddies, he was getting yelled at by his parents. And his parents asked that very same question. How many times do I have to tell you not to do that? And being a smart aleck, he was all 32. It didn't go too well for him. <laughs> Let's see how well it goes for our Pharisees. Verse 10. And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Once again, the man was obedient and there was a reward for his obedience. Now, he could have said, Jesus, my hand has been withered all these years. I, I, I can't stretch out my hand. I can't. Two of the most sorriest words when put together. I can't. It says that you won't even try. How disappointing. You know, I remember in basic training that here it was, one of the privates next to me, he gets dropped for doing something wrong. And as he's pushing out the push-ups, the drill sergeant was like, give me 50. And so he's pushing, and he gets to about 20, and then all of a sudden he's all shaking and everything, and he falls down, and he says the words, I can't, drill sergeant. Oh, my goodness, did you just tell me you can't? What is your major malfunction, right? The drill sergeant goes off on him. Oh, my goodness. But then he addressed all of us, and he said, I want you right now to take those two words out of your vocabulary for the rest of your life. Never say the words, I can't, again. Now, you see, in the heat of battle, there's no I can't. You either make it happen, or people die, or you sacrifice your own life. But Adam, what if I fail? that at least you will have failed by not being amongst those cold, timid souls that know neither victory nor defeat. Borrowed that from Theodore Roosevelt, his man in the arena speech. So when told to stretch out his hand, this man could have said, I can't, I'm paralyzed. But God's commandments are his enablements. The moment he decided to obey, he was able to obey. Husbands, love your wives. That's what it says in Ephesians 5.25. But I can't, we say, you don't know my wife. <laughs> you don't know my situation. I can't. I'm paralyzed. We can either make out a list of why we can't obey, or we can say, Lord, you said love my wife, and I will. Knowing that as I do, you will enable me to do that which you've asked of me. Continuing in verse 11. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They weren't just mad at him. It says they were filled with rage. Rage? 
a paralyzed hand suddenly works. You see, the Pharisees were, far, were furious just because it was done so on the Sabbath. You see, the rage here, and in the Greek, it means irrational or mindless anger. When we look at the parallels in Matthew 12, 14 and Mark 3, 6, it is clear that from this point on, the Pharisees start plotting against Jesus. Verse 12, now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Have you ever prayed and sometimes it just feels moot? Like you're praying to a wall? It just doesn't seem to be any answers. Well, first I want to remind you, what are the three answers from God? Yes, no, and wait. Maybe you're not receiving the answers because that's where you're at. You're in that wait, that holding pattern from God. And wait is always the hardest, isn't it? But let me ask you this. When was the last time you prayed continually all night in prayer. I've had some amazing times of prayer in silence, in solitude, first things in the morning, and I prayed for hours. I've had incredible times of corporate prayer where we've come together and for hours we have prayed. But all night long, I can honestly say I have not. But what if you were to pray all night long? What if that were the catalyst needed? Daniel prayed for 21 days before he heard his answer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray with season. Even if the answer is wait, at least you're being obedient. Verse 13. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself and said, Which of my favorite disciples had brought me coffee? Just kidding. That wasn't it. Sorry, Lord. And from them, he chose 12, whom he named his apostles. Simon, who he also called, or named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who, was also, who also became a traitor. Now, 12 is the number of government, and numbers mean things in the Bible. Now, that's not mean that we're supposed to get into all these conspiracy theories about, oh, well, we can figure out this and that and everything. However, for example, the number 40, that represents testing, and we see that, right? It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. How many days was Jesus out in the wilderness before Satan came to him? 40 days. What about in Exodus? How long were the Jews out in the desert before they went into the promised land? 40 days, right? So we can see that. We see the, num the number seven, number of completion. In six days, God created the heavens and earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. Number of uh, completion, number seven. So Jesus chooses 12. 12 of the most religious, 12 of the Pharisees and Sadducees of the Sanhedrin who would have most been most knowledgeable in regarding his scriptures? No. He calls fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot. Individuals like you and me. Not the best of the best. 
or like in Men in Black, the best of the best of the best, sir. <laughs> yeah, that's not who Jesus surrounds himself with. And he continues to surround himself with individuals like you and me. I mean, look at this motley crew in the sanctuary. <laughs> and I'm the ringleader. Even when Judas Iscariot came up to Jesus, Jesus didn't go, uh, yeah, is there, is there anybody else who wants to be an apostle? Anyone? Anyone? All right, Judas, I guess you're number 12. Really, God? Is it, you know, it's him? Even Judas is called to Jesus, and that should give all of us hope. Following Jesus wouldn't be easy, nor is it easy for us today. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what does he mean my yoke is easy, my burden is light? Now, this is part of the larger passage from Matthew 11, 28 through 30, in which Jesus tells all those that are weary and burdened to come to him for rest. He's not speaking about physical burdens, but rather the heavy burdens of the system of the works that the Pharisees had laid on the backs of the people that's who Jesus was saying that he wanted to offer relief. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus would go ahead and rebuke the Pharisees for laying such heavy burdens on the shoulders of the people. And we see that in Matthew 23, 4. I love who Jesus chose. And I'm glad he chose us. Amen? Verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed, and the multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Now, the following teaching is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. However, I believe that this is a misnomer. Take a look at Luke 16, verse 17. Excuse me, Luke 6, verse 17. Jesus says, as he delivered it, he stood on a level place. Or in the King James Version, it says, in the plain. Because of this, I'm personally convinced that even though this is almost an exact repetition of Jesus' sermon that's recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, it is, in fact, a separate sermon. Remember, they didn't have Facebook or YouTube that they could just go ahead and rewatch the video. They didn't have Bibles that they could just turn back the page and say, what was it that he said again? No. Repetition is the mother of all skill. So along those lines, if he said the same points again and again and again, it was an opportunity then for each and every one to go ahead and glean, oh, that's what he was trying to say. Or I missed that the first time. You see, it was interesting. Yesterday for men's, uh, men's breakfast, Pastor Mike went ahead and he gave, he talked from 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter verses 1 verse 12, it says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are, re are established in the present truth. He had given a list. Peter had given a list for all of us to follow, to be good, to be kind, all of these things. But he says, look, I know that you know Know these things. Now, let me just reiterate. Let me just repeat it for you one more time. 
and it's important. Therefore, as a preacher, as a teacher, as a Bible study leader, don't let the enemy whisper into your ear, you can't share that. It's too elementary. They've already heard that. And you will hear me from the pulpit say, pray, say, read your Bible again and again and again. And as a student, don't ever think you know enough about the word that you never need to study it again. The question is not how much you know, but how well you know it. The message Jesus had previously given on the mount and now gives on the plain is the message of the king. It was a message meant to drive people to the realization that they couldn't keep it. A message meant to drive people to the place of brokenness. A message meant to drive people to the cross. Therefore, the only conclusion that can be drawn from the Sermon on the Mount, the message on the plain, is not, these are good words to live by, but this standard is impossible. Therefore, the one who grasps it mean, its meaning doesn't say, I'm pretty good, but I'll try harder. No, he or she says, I'm a sinner, in desperate need of a Savior. Then, once we realize we can't keep the standard on our own, once we are saved, the message becomes helpful to us as it defines the ways in which the Spirit desires to work in us. Jesus felt that the sermon was so significant, he repeated it almost verbatim. It is indeed the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of humanity. So simply read it. Let the message of the kingdom impact you anew. But that will be next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you and we love you so much. And we love the fact that, Lord, we can come up to the edge of this cliff, this precipice. And Lord, can't wait to see what it is that you're going to teach us. Lord, each and every time I read your word, Lord, I get inspired because I can read the same passage again and again and again, and yet still you are good to show me something different each and every time. So thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had together. Thank you, Lord, for the time in your word. And Lord, just like the Pharisees, Lord, let us not be those legalistic individuals. Lord, those that take the Lord, that take your words so, so specific, and then we go ahead and point at others. But Lord, we need to remember all those fingers pointing back at us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this time spent together. You know how much we love you. We sing your praises, and it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.